0: Hello and welcome to the
1: podcast. You're listening to Be Uncluttered. I'm Rebecca Mazzino and with me is Tara Tuttle and
0: together we are going to help you on your journey to a life free of clutter. Hi and welcome to the show. Today I am chatting with Iona Holloway. She coaches high-functioning women who are feeling invisible, trapped or shrunken within their perfect seeming worlds. She's the author of the number one best-selling book, Ghost, Why Perfect Women Shrink. She has an absolutely awesome Scottish accent, so it's really great to listen to, and is here today to discuss with me perfection and why our relentless pursuit of that is doing us a massive disservice. So welcome to the podcast, Iona. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. That was a lovely,
1: generous introduction. Thank you.
0: So this insight that you have in into the pursuit of perfection and how it has this ability to diminish us or diminish women isn't just something that you've, you know, gone off to university or college and researched. It's something that you've personally lived through. This is your story. And It's a story that I think so many of us can relate to in one way or another. So can you start today by sharing with us a little bit about yourself and how perfectionism was showing up in your early life?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, Yeah, and I think that the personal experience of things distills stuff down into not just knowledge but wisdom especially when you've been able to move through it and understand it in some way um so I appreciate that um I think if I can distill it down to the most simple thing it is I was the number one collector of what I call glitter and glitter is pretty much anything that made me look or feel strong or good, or good enough to be existing in the world. So I was going around collecting all of the evidence that I possibly could through winning things, through being top of my class when I was younger, and then ultimately, the hardest working person in every single environment that I placed myself in. Um, I had the really small body, um, and a huge part of The story that I tell in my book Ghost is how perfection manifested as an embodied war through trying to shrink my body. Um, But I would say that my life was stuffed to the brim with every single thing I could possibly collect to prove that I was perfect to perhaps myself and to everyone watching. But the reality of that existence was that it was incredibly painful to be me because the standard was so high and the energy that had to go in to keep up that facade of perfection was truly exhausting. Um, And it eventually, it broke me.
0: And I guess that's the thing, isn't it? It's keeping up the facade. You talk about being exhausted, but I bet people around you, even people, potentially quite close to you, wouldn't have seen or appreciated how exhausted you were because being perfect, you probably also kept the facade perfectly, which meant no cracks, no people peering in or being able to see this exhaustion. So I guess it would have been a real internal struggle for you keeping that that facade up. Yes, uh, 100%. And I think that
1: that experience of the facade is one that so many people can relate to in some way. The idea that what we are presenting out to the world, the external self, compared to the internal world that we're wrestling with, often those, those experiences or those personas or lived experiences or whatever you want to call them are vastly different. And that's why so many of us feel like frauds because the outside isn't matching the inside. So we're having to work very, very hard to conceal what's inside. And what one of my favorite phrases to describe this um, is, if you want to look at something powerful, look at the force used to suppress it. Um, and that's not my wording. Um, that's a beautiful woman who I met called Brittany who said that phrase. But, it's this idea that what we conceal or feel inside is powerful. It can be powerful in a very destructive way if it's not, um, if we're not feeling good about it. It can also be powerful in a really beautiful way if we actually know how to be more honest with ourselves in the world. But I think the reality for many, for many people, is that we're scared to show the cracks. And so we'll work incredibly hard to pretend they don't exist.
0: Mm. That's a really strong image, and I love the the idea of the cracks. I don't know if um, you're familiar with the. Uh, I think it's a Japanese kind of art form where, if things, especially like pottery or ceramic kind of items, are broken or chipped, they're repaired. They're usually repaired in a different color, and um, then the the crack is part of the story. And it's almost honoured and revered in some way, rather than it being a, a perfect cup and saucer. For ex- for example, the the crack—if it say it's a white cup—it might be the crack is um, fixed with a mint green filler, so it's a completely different contrasting color, and it adds to the beauty of the piece rather than um, being covered in white and trying to imagine it's not there. Are you familiar with that that concept? I. It's. I'm smiling to myself. It's Kintsugi. It's the. Oh, it's see, the I Japanese love that you have the term. Are, <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, and the and you know the reason that the reason I know about it is one, a woman that wrote an endorsement for Ghost used that description as a way of describing the way I talk about the mending of the self, not the mm-hmm. fixing of the self, but the mending, and the idea that the scar tissue actually adds in a way it tells the story of our lives it's not it's not a blemish it's 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 a strengthening and an, an addition of the self and i actually have been working with clients with this visual especially because i really have been trying to get out of just deconstruct the idea that we are trying to fix ourselves mm. when we're doing any kind of work because that in and of itself implies that we're broken and i believe to the bones because I felt that it was broken for a very long time. We are never broken. We're often just lost and everything that we have is already here. It's just buried under stories, lived experiences, shame, pain, whatever it is. Um, and so I've been working with the visual of the, of the cracked pottery and visualising us filling in those bits and pieces Um, with my clients so I just I love that you brought that up I think it's I love it as a visual and a metaphor for any of this work
0: yeah it's, it's perfect so you refer to yourself um on your website and and places like that um as a reformed robot and you talk about um how you you've gone from moving rhythmically through your day and your week and your life, um, maintaining this facade. But what, what eventually changed? Like what was the catalyst for you to realize that this wasn't sustainable?
1: Yeah, the major, the major catalyst was when the most human part of me that was left, which was my physical body broke on me. So my i i was using so much force and exertion and mental strength to muscle my way through everything um but at a certain point my body just started to break down um so i mean i didn't have a period for most of my most of my life because of how um lean or small i was and how much exercise i was doing I would often train for nearly four hours every day. I tracked every single thing that went into my body. I stripped naked and weighed myself every single morning. And there was just this ticking over of numbers that needed to be met or calculated or subtracted for me to feel like I was good enough. And of course, it only got More constricting, and it only, the sense of self only shrank more as those numbers became more intense, because there's never an end point with that. Um, But at a certain point, my body was just, it was so painful. My skin hurt. I was just racked with such deep fatigue and also this really primal hunger. And so, a huge part of my story was was my sort of embodied war the physical shrinking of my body um but i i shuttled between eating very little and having these ginormous like 10,000 calorie binges because i was just my body was that deprived of Mm-mm. everything um and so I, it was around i turned 29 and it all just started to break on me um was constantly getting injured, could barely function. And I call it, in Ghost, I call it the reckoning. And that's really what it felt like. Um, I, the, the one part of me that felt human, my body, just stepped in and was like, we're done here. And I was almost forced to listen. I can't say I was excited to listen at the, at the time, but I'm very, I'm very grateful for it now because I'm now in a relationship with my body where I can, it's powerful. So I would like all our bodies are powerful if we actually inhabit them, and it's a lot more powerful when you can work with your body rather than constantly trying to control it or suppress it or shrink it.
0: And a piece of the puzzle that is probably worth mentioning is that you weren't you weren't physically weak or um, a, a sickly child, or I mean, you. You were an athlete, weren't you? Can you tell us about mm-hmm. that? Because you weren't, you weren't even in your home country with your natural support system around you when all of this started coming to a head. You were away from home um, with all sorts of, you know, work pressures and stuff like that. Can you just fill us in a, a bit of that background? Because it, it, it adds to the picture of how much you were trying to keep it all together Um, Yeah. And the place that you came from, which appeared to be so strong and someone that had it all. Yeah. Um, Something that I've said before that sometimes makes
1: people bristle, but I share it anyway, because it's the truth. And I used to think it pretty much on a daily basis is I really wanted to be anorexic. I really, really wanted to be able to shrink and not binge, but it just wasn't possible for me in my life and a huge I think a big part of that was that I was a really successful athlete I needed fuel I was competing I mean I'm from Scotland it's a small country but I was competing for the national team and when I was 19 I was recruited to play division one field hockey at Syracuse University in the States which was basically a $70,000 annual scholarship to play for the university and get my degree for free. And so I was in a very high-performance environment. And so it wasn't ever that I was weak in my smallness. In fact, my body was ridiculously strong. Um, And it actually became even more so once I graduated and really got into weightlifting and CrossFit, I just had a tendency of putting myself into intense environments where the pretty, for lack of a better word, disordered, inhumane way that I was behaving was reinforced by the culture that was surrounded, like in CrossFit gyms or in high performance environments. And so all the ways where I was extreme was not only validated, but rewarded um, and so it wasn't ever that I was thin even. It was never that anyone thought that I looked weak. I was the one with the less than 10% body fat with visible muscle. Um, I mean, I was tiny, but I was I was a force of nature. Mm. Um, and that gave me a lot of, of what felt like strength. Um, although looking back on it, I see how brittle I actually was. It was such a house of cards.
0: It's so interesting to contemplate, isn't it? Because we quite often will categorise people or, you know, put them in the box, you know, that perfect looks one way. Um, but this perfection shows up in so many different ways. It's not just physical. It's not just... Um, being the best or you know getting the best grades or being the best at work so you've explained a bit how your experience of perfectionism was showing up your grades your body image your athletic output can you explain or give us some examples of how this perfectionism might manifest for different people like can it show up for people in perfect parenting for example or you know Mm -hmm. now we're Um, you know we're on a podcast where we're talking about you know quite often people living with less but can people take that to the extreme like minimalism and then try and craft this perfect idealized you know home um, and get lost and get swallowed up by the perfection in that how does how else can it show up for people
1: yeah I think I think perfection perfectionism is something that pretty much everyone deals with. Um, I think that often there's this odd correlation between being a type A person and being a perfectionist or being a very high achieving person um, or someone with very high standards and being a perfectionist. But the way that I see this play out, I see perfectionism in pretty much every single person I meet because if anyone is in any way a people pleaser, what they're doing is try to control people's responses to them, often by being good or not being the nail that sticks out. So softening themselves in some way, censoring themselves in some way, in order for the union to feel perfect. That's something I see in so many of my clients who wouldn't necessarily think of themselves as a perfectionist, but look at the places where we're trying to control the way people experience us. And you can pretty much walk it back to we're trying for things to be perfect. So if it could be a relationship where we're just not honest in, why? It's because it needs to be protected. And so we'll try to be extra good so that we don't ruffle any feathers. Or if it's within the context of a home, what are we controlling here when we're removing elements or in pursuit of minimalism? like? What's the morality around that? Like what are you what morality are you attaching to the ability to live with less and less and less? Like what's the motivation there? Mm. Is there a way that you're trying to control the way someone experiences you? Are you trying to get validation for how disciplined you are? These are all different ways that perfectionism can show up, perhaps in not in the way that we often
0: talk about. So, from your work that you've done, not just on yourself but with other clients that are experiencing this, have you come to any kind of understanding of where this need to be perfect comes from? Like, do you think it is modelling by our parents? Is that have we if we learnt this behaviour, or is it something that shows up after traumatic experiences, or is it, you know, is it a, a I I was going to say an epidemic, it feels like the wrong word to be Mm -hmm. using at this point in time, but I'm going there. Is it an epidemic of our exposure to insane levels of comparison? We didn't used to be able to compare ourselves with celebrities and their homes and their lives and their um, whatever, their makeup routines, whatever it is. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, now we have access to everyone On the globe practically and into their lives so we can compare you know is it is it coming from that what what are your thoughts around where this need to be perfect comes from i think it's it's one of those annoying answers
1: it's a combination of all of them because Mm -hmm. i think that the people that we become is an amalgamation of what we've been told we are and how that interacts perhaps with just like how we fall into this world, like what we inherit from from past generations, even the the traits and the personalities or the tendencies. And that combined with the environment, the stories that people begin to tell about us. Um, So, for example, the stories that I heard for much of my childhood, often from my peers and from teachers, was that I was so naturally gifted. Oh, wow, she just picks up everything. And it's 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 magical. <laughs> it, was, it was like I had the sort of mm-hmm. golden glitter that I was dropping over everything, um, and that wasn't actually true because that's not it's not really possible unless you are a genius. Um, but that became the identity that I started to to wear, and that's an example of how the stories that were told become the people that we are, and at a certain point, we become the most um, invested defenders of that truth Um, but I think your point about comparison and the access that we have to what everyone's putting out um, has a huge impact on the way that we feel about ourselves and it's an artificial experience even if we take like me as an example for two almost two decades of my life the facade that I was presenting to the world was completely different than the reality of my lived experience. And I think that that is true for pretty much all the facades that we see around the world, whether it's a celebrity or whether it's what a friend is posting on Mm -hmm. Instagram or whether it's the tidied up photo that someone's taken of their beautiful home before they share it. We're all, we're in, there's an artificiality to everything that we're seeing. We're seeing the highlight reel. We're seeing the best case scenario for most people, unless they're wildly vulnerable. And even then, there's a degree of curation. And so I think that as humans, we haven't quite been able to process what's happening to us as a species because of so much input that isn't actually real or human um, and I think that so many of us are paying paying the price for that by really not not knowing what's even good about us anymore and how we measure up
0: oh, it makes the mind boggle doesn't it
1: yeah yeah it does I think about this stuff all the time even when I'm when I'm thinking about why I share because one of the things that I try to be really mindful of is being honest to to the degree that feels comfortable about my human experience and also being someone that people trust to come to perhaps to support them in breaking free from perfectionism or working on their self-worth or whatever it is that someone would come to work with me for and like where's the line like how much do we share how honest do we have to be and also just having a higher standard and a more perhaps editing eye of what we allow into our own eyeballs Mm. because what goes through our eyeballs like it wraps itself around our heart it climbs up into our thoughts it becomes it becomes part of the story of who we are um and i think we have to be more and more careful About what we let in.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we've kind of, you know, come to grips with the idea of perfection and how we're pursuing it and why maybe we're pursuing it. You, like, one of the core principles that you try and illuminate, I guess, for your readers and your followers are that while we are pursuing perfection, um, we kind of fool ourselves into thinking that we're living big because on the outside this facade looks big, it looks grand, it looks perfect. but that in reality we're actually a smaller version of ourselves that we're diminished that and I love the way you put it that we are hiding in plain sight. Can you talk to us a little bit around how that how that might feel living like that that someone could, um, relate to or or how someone might come to know that that is the way they're living
1: yeah it's a great question um I use that term hiding in plain sight often to describe the experience of the people that apparently seem to glide through life that no one would ever ask are you okay um, I, I'll never forget a conversation that I had with a client I was working with, um, I think she'd just turned 50, um, had wonderful family, two children, beautiful home. I always remember seeing the background of her Zoom um, call because it was this beautifully ornate library that she would sit in when we had these conversations. And she said to me one day, I realized being the one no one asks about isn't a good thing. And that stuck with me so so clearly because it resonated so deeply with my own experience of what I've come to witness in so many of the women that I've crossed paths with with this work people don't see us because all they're seeing is what is the life that we're creating that that looks big um but when we are when we are wrapped up so intensely in the work and curation of having a lot of things and for them all having to be apparently perfect. We're not giving ourselves any breathing room to try anything. So for example, um, for one of my, uh, uh, quite a lot of the people that I work with would just perhaps describe themselves as creative once. Like once upon a time, mm-hmm. they were creative. So they were the writers or they were the painters and they find themselves in these careers now where they're not actually creating anything. They're supporting those who are creating things. So it's almost like this is a good example of, of shrinking. So we're close enough to what we say that we love to do, but we are a support act We're not actually allowing ourselves to try anything because we can't show incomplete work. Iteration feels like vulnerability. Showing things half done or having to work through a process is too confronting for someone when every single output we have has to be perfection. And this can look like things like having these beautiful plans for perhaps a room in your home. I'm even thinking of one of my clients who, this is her experience, She can't even start.
0: Mm -hmm. She
1: can't even start in the process of creating the space because she has a vision. Her standard for it is so high that there's no way for her to take that first step into doing anything because it has to be a perfect one. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is how lives shrink because we don't allow ourselves to be brave. We don't allow ourselves to take risks. And the reason why we can't do that is because we don't want people to see us as imperfect or incomplete or without the answers.
0: I've got a concept I want to throw at you, and I don't know if it's one you're familiar with. It's um, a term that is quite often used in Australia called tall poppy syndrome. Um, And I don't even know where it originated, but it's a part of Australian culture that I knew of, but I feel like I only started seriously noticing that it exists more in Australia after living overseas. And I found that it wasn't as prevalent there, Not definitely not to the same extent. So tall poppy syndrome is the idea that if someone is standing out from the crowd or growing bigger than those around them, that they need to be cut down to size. It's based on this idea that all poppies should grow together at the same rate. And I feel like um, living in the UK, now in the US, I feel like success and confidence and accolades here are praised and admired more. But And, you know, the people that are being successful shout their successes from the rooftops, whether it's part of their facade or not. But in Australia, we tend to view people that celebrate their own success as arrogance um, and we want to cut people down to size that are overly accomplished and I'm wondering if this idea or this notion might feed into the need of women to diminish their worth or diminish their output externally because they feel like they're taking up too much space or they're being too loud And then that they might be judged or ridiculed and like happens so frequently brought down to size publicly. What are your thoughts about about that? Is it something you were aware of or you've experienced? Mm, Yes,
1: I love this. I love this. I think in Scotland, we call this being too big for your boots. It was probably Mm -hmm. the worst thing you could ever be, which was the idea that you would grow, your feet would get so big that you wouldn't fit your boots anywhere. Um, And it like, Scotland is, it's like the tiny part of the UK and we've always been the sort of inferior or suppressed nation. Like, England has always dominated us and I think that that has bled into the way that Scottish people act in many ways and feel mm-hmm. about themselves. And in some ways it's re- really endearing because it's that, this kind of that dark, sarcastic um slant to everything, but I certainly was raised in an environment where arrogance and confidence felt like the same thing. I believe they were the same thing for mm-hmm. for a very, very long time. Um, and when I moved, so I moved to the US when I was 20, and I've been here for over a decade now, um, and there was a definite difference in tone <laughs> to the way that people talked about themselves here which was it felt like a foreign language to my ears when I first came and um, but I do still think there is this confusion and I think it's especially true within women about confidence and arrogance because we think that these are the same thing and so if we get too confident in ourselves that we'll become this really arrogant person that no one likes. And at the end of the day, so many of us, it's a fundamental human need to be, to be liked. Um, and I think often that is a reason why so many of us in our lives do end up playing playing in some way small um, because we're almost scared of what it would mean to take up space or we have no idea what that would even look or feel like. And also what happens if everyone that knows us then rejects us and we're out lost on our own. Um, that's, I think, another reason why so many of us don't have the confidence to to back ourselves. Um, I think it's the reason why so many people can't actually use their voice to talk about anything to do with themselves. And so that's why we end up talking about other people. Mm. Um, and that's where I think you're the metaphor of the poppy comes down. So I think this is another part of the way that we mitigate the feelings that perhaps we're not doing everything that we could or we're not doing the most of, we're not making the most of our lives or we're not going after our dreams, so we'll go after other people's. And I think that's often where jealousy shows up. Um, and so we'll point to the people who actually perhaps are embodying a degree of confidence that we that we wish that we had, and we'll find some way to cut them down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and this was something I I did this my whole life with other women, any woman um, that felt like a threat to the confidence or space that I held in any environment, whether it was at work or at the gym um, or in my social life, wherever it was, often. They were the collateral damage. Um, I was that, and it's not, it's not, doesn't paint me in a good light. I'm not trying to, and I don't do that in ghosts at all. Like there were many, many times in my life where I cut someone else down in order for me to feel big. And that's something that I've had to do a lot of inner work around understanding why. Um, and I think it comes back to um. It, it does come back to this idea that we feel like we're fighting for scarce limelight in some way. We're not being able, we're not embodying ourselves in the way that we want to. And so that's often where jealousy and cutting other people down helps us in some way feel big in a world that actually might be quite small.
0: Mm. It's funny, I remember when I first started in business and I had this scarcity mentality and I saw every other woman in a similar type of industry or field to me as an enemy. Mm. And it was like there's only only so much of the pie to be had. And if you're having a big slice, then that will make my slice smaller. And I would I remember, you know, following people on their social media who were doing what I wanted to be doing but were five years down the track and I would be in my head throwing all kinds of hate at them like oh my gosh look how many followers they've got look what they're doing you know like I oh, da, 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 da. can't stand that so I'd unfollow them I'd be like I can't I just don't even want to you know see that and it was all about um, me <laughs> not being confident in the space that I was trying to fill and then as I did a bit of work on myself I'm like just just because they're working in a similar industry and they're successful, I shouldn't be hating on them for that. I should be celebrating that because if they can do it, then so can I. And maybe I could learn something from them and maybe I could be inspired by them and maybe they could teach me a thing or two. You know, like actually it doesn't, it's not so binary. It's not so black and white. It's not if they have more, I have less. It's that I can celebrate them and still do me like I can hang in my lane but I can glance left and right and go good on you for getting ahead and you know well done on this over there I'm still me in my lane no one else can do me and just because you're successful that doesn't diminish me in any way but it take it takes work it definitely took me a bit of work to get to that point when I first started out
1: yeah and I think what you just described there is the difference between being a human and trying to be a perfect one, because okay. I think that that sort of black and white experience of I either win or I lose. So if someone else is already winning in some way in the, in the industry or with the career that I want, then I already lost. And so we do, and so we do nothing. Um, or we play smaller. We're like, Oh, maybe I'll just do this instead because it's close enough. Um, And I think that settling into and being able to understand that we all have worth, no one does it like we do. We all have a way of sharing with the world in a generous way if we are ourselves that no one could ever compete with because, like you said, we are who we are. No one can do me, I can do you. Um, And that's a much more kind of abundant, open space to play in Rather than thinking that just because someone else is doing something similar you can't um, but I think that like these are the, these are the holes that we fall down. these are the lies that we tell ourselves when we are not filling ourselves up with our own sense of innate worthiness.
0: So is that the way we shrink then? like you know you talk you focus a lot on the idea of shrinking to, to fill our space. Is that is that how we shrink? We we don't let ourselves be um, fully, not even fully present, but fully ourselves, all facets—the good, the bad, and the bits that need improvement. You know that we hide them, suppress them. Um, is is that what you are getting at when you talk about shrinking?
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I love that way of describing it. It's almost like we would rather it's safer to be beige. So we'll mm-hmm. just sort of get rid of all the things that actually make us special, so we can guarantee that what we're doing is good. And it just means that we're never actually opening ourselves up in any vulnerable way. So we pass and we probably do well, but our soul is dead inside because we're mm-hmm. not actually being ourselves. Um, and that even the term like being ourselves, like what does that even mean? Um, one example I love to use from my life is that there were things I loved to do when I was young. One of them was eat macaroni cheese. Um, but the other was <laughs> to write little stories and to, I, I was always drawing. I was always reading. Um, and I loved play I was in a, I was, I loved playing sports and being outside with my older brother and all that kind of thing. I loved all that stuff. And then as perfectionism wrapped itself around me, all of that, color fell out of my life because i just became an executor of tasks and it felt important but i was gone and i was no longer myself i was just executing on things in pursuit of some constructed ideal self that i didn't that i was trying to find but as i began to soften um as i started doing a lot of healing work around Who am I even like? What do I even like? All of the color that kind of got lost along the way came back. And so now my life now feels a lot more childlike in many ways, in the sense that I'm now doing again all of the things that I did when I was myself before perfection wrapped itself around me. And so I feel more me. I feel more human, definitely. Life is a lot more fun to live, but I also feel more me. Um, And that's allowed me to do things like have to write a book. I never could have started writing a book when I was trying to be perfect because it would have been the most excruciating experience and I would have given up because chapter one wasn't perfect. Um, I never would have been able to start a business when I was trying to be perfect because how do you start? And these are all things that I dreamed about when I was young and I'm now able to realise in a beautiful way, however, like whatever way it's unfolding, because I'm allowing myself to be, to follow what feels what feels good rather than what I think I should be doing to make sure that people think I'm good.
0: Mm. And a lot of us wouldn't even know what feels good anymore. We've so dis- disconnected with our inner feeling, it's all about external validation that mm-hmm. there's there's some work to be done to get to get back in touch with ourselves, to even recognize when something feels satisfying for ourselves, for our soul, not for public consumption, not for the right coloured image in the Instagram grid. Like, yeah, I think I think there's there's a lot in that. And I love that you use the word colourful because I will put a picture of Iona on our um, on our website, but you are you're the embodiment of colourful. You have the most yeah. phenomenal hair.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was like month three of I call it like guessing well, like mending, whatever you want to call it, but on month three, I just woke up. I'd just done a whole lot of inner child work, um, which is sort of reconnecting with your childhood self and understanding. Like when you abandon that part of you and finding ways to reconnect with with yourself, um, and I was like, I think I think my hair needs to be pink, and I don't know, we're nearly three three years down the line now, and it just feels, just feels right, and I'm not trying to do it for anyone else. It just feels good for me, just in the same way that. I wear yellow now, and I never allowed myself to wear yellow because I wanted to have a very minimal wardrobe, and I could only wear colours that were that were black because those were slimming and serious and all that kind of thing. Um, it's all the all the ways that we drain our personality and sense of self out. We sometimes don't even realise that we're doing it. Um, but anything that we can do to reclaim to reclaim ourselves, and um, it's that is the work that everyone needs
0: to be doing Mm. I you're reminding me of I had a bit of a oh let's call it my quarter life crisis (laughs) (laughs) um and I was into it was pre-kids pre-marriage I was entirely consumed by my work um and like slept lived breathed. it was work I was connected 100% of the time and Uh, pretty demotivated, but didn't come up for air long enough to realize that that was how I was feeling anyway. I remember taking a a weekend off and flying back home interstate to see my family. And I remember my dad saying to me, oh, you know, this works that you're doing is pretty full on. He said, you know, we hardly hear from you and all of that. And that didn't, it sounds terrible. That didn't, you know, alarm me that I used to call my family all the time. And I wasn't calling them very much. And he said, and from what I hear, you've stopped cooking. And that to me was like a slap in the face. Cause I was like, I come from a, um, German heritage and we are all about the food and every occasion (laughs) is all about the food. And dad was like, what's that about? You've stopped cooking. Mm. And I was like, oh my gosh, that was the wake up call I needed. I was like, that's that that is the highlight of you know of that's what makes me me is I've always loved cooking I'm always in the kitchen that's my happy place and it took him to say that for me to go you're right I'm massively disconnected I didn't even I didn't even keep milk in the fridge I kept frozen dinners in the freezer that was it and then I was I thought okay this is I've lost myself in this work life so I flew back and I quit <laughs> the next day. I walked in and said, I'm done. And my boss was like, what? And I said, I've stopped cooking. And he thought I was mad. But I was like, okay, that's the that's part of my essence. And it has been gone. It left the building six months ago. And that's not okay. So I can't um he tried to talk me into, <laughs> you know, a way to incorporate the two. And I'm like, nah, there's no I can't, I can't be this and be that. So I need to go now while I can still <laughs> reclaim that essence that I've lost. Otherwise, it'll be gone forever. So, um, my dad felt a bit concerned for a while that he'd kind of <laughs> turned off this great job that I had. I'm like, it's all good. It's all good. I find there'll always be another job. But um, if I lose that connection with what I loved and what made me me, then how do you know if you can ever refine it? So,
1: yeah. It's funny.
0: It's funny how it yeah. how it shows up for us, whether it's, hair colour whether it's in the kitchen it's that whole reminding what what lights you up and when we're in this um facade whether we're trying to be beige or we're trying to be the perfect black with all the other perfect blacks it's just it's just a it's just a really awful way of existing so now I want you to give us some hope (laughs) and 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 Can you maybe give us something to take away, something we could do today to stop the shrinking? Are there particular habits or practices that you believe help us to let go of this perfectionistic tendency and live more fully as ourselves?
1: That's a great question. Um, One thing that I did want to know before I go on that is what you said about Consciously choosing to remove yourself from an environment that was causing you to shrink. Mm-hmm. I think so many of us are in pain because of the environments that we place ourselves in. And so sometimes we'll try to fix ourselves within the context of a job that is just wrong or a relationship that is just wrong. And we feel weird about it. We feel broken in them. And sometimes we actually just have to leave those, those environments you said it, you're like you, I can't do I can't cook and do this job so I'm choosing I'm choosing me Um, I think so many of us are really scared to actually do that so I just wanted to say how much I love that I think that often can be a beautiful way of beginning to reclaim a bit of ourselves mm-hmm. by really really examining the environments that we're placing ourselves in and the quality of the relationships that we have within them. Um, another thing that I think that I really like to, to practice is asking myself how honest I am throughout the day. So in any interaction that I have with someone, do I, am I actually honest in it or am I guarded in some way or am I people pleasing in some way or am I saying what I think someone wants to me, me to say or am I saying something that makes me look good? like applying an honesty filter to all of our interactions, whether it's in person, spoken, over over the internet, over the phone, whatever it is, where is the disconnect? How much of a disconnect is there between what we are saying, what is coming out of our mouth into the physical world, and what we actually feel inside? Because that can be a really, really good barometer for how – Honest, we're being. How much of ourselves we're being, and perhaps how perfectly we're trying to manage our lives. Um, the first tool, always with any work where we're hoping to perhaps change something or move into a different way of being, is by observing our experience with the, with the lens of curiosity. Mm. So I often use the use the example of the bird watcher. The bird watcher doesn't hang out in the woods judging the birds that fly around. He sits there and is curious and interested about the reasons why perhaps this bird is over here or what this one looks like or why these ones are collecting in a group over here. We have to do the same with the observation of our present state. How curious. Why did I feel like I couldn't be honest there in that environment? Why did I feel like I had to pretend I was okay in that in my relationship in that conversation when I'm actually not? Where am I shrinking the truth of who I am so that the water stays smooth and so that people think perhaps that I'm not needy or perfect or that I'm strong or wh- whatever it is? Um, that first step, the lens of curiosity, being a bird watcher of your experience, running everything through the honesty filter and seeing where you land and not judging perhaps how out of alignment you are and um, that's a that's a really important first step and to suspend all judgment around it because no one needs any more of that
0: mm. I think I think you've just created up entirely new product you need to create the honesty filter so you know how <laughs> on social media we can add all kind of amazing filters add lashes to our skin, if you could create the honesty one so it takes all the rubbish <laughs> out of what people are saying <laughs> to mm-hmm. get to the heart of what they're really saying, that would be great. Um, it would be nice to be able to, to apply something like a filter to mm-hmm. be able to take all of the rhetoric and all the narrative and all the past experience and baggage that we have because um, we're all carrying it and be able to strip it away. But I think, like you said, just observing it is probably a really good place to start because that's probably where we'll start noticing patterns or even connecting with the feeling of being uncomfortable or being restrained in a conversation or being walking away from someone or some situation going, I wasn't fully myself. I held back or I, you know, overinflated whatever I was doing why why was Mm -hmm. that where did that come from
1: yeah and I love I love what you said there about restriction because that can we cannot sometimes feel that in an embodied way like a tightening of our chest or literally swallowing our voice like and like there can be we can observe it from the mind or the head the head space from the men through the mental model but beginning to pay attention to the way your body is talking to you if you have that connection with it. Like, where is my heart racing? Where is my chest feeling tight? Where where am I kind of making myself small physically inside an experience? Um, where am I swallowing my words or tripping over myself? All of these are really interesting ways for us to begin to track how we move through the world. And it's all all data that we can use Mm. to empower ourselves with
0: well I could talk to you for about another four hours but I should (laughs) probably wind it up so um your book is phenomenal can you um let us know where we can find out more about you whereabouts do you hang out online what's your website and your book and where we can find it if we want more
1: yeah of course so the benefit of having an unusual name, you can pretty much find me anywhere. I own from for my website. I own a on Instagram. And that's my sort of primary place where I hang out day to day. And then to buy Ghost by Perfect Women Shrink, you can buy it on Amazon um, or just Google it. It's been picked up by lots of different um, book places or where, where they sell books. Um, so you can find me, find me in all those places and on my website there's a little section ionahallway.com forward slash gifts where you can get some free things like the first chapter for ghosts if you want to try before you buy um a couple of free webinars a reading guide for ghosts just little things like that and for you to get more of a feel for me and the work that I love to do
0: that's brilliant I will make sure we have links to all of those things in the show notes too so if you didn't catch them you can head to the show notes page and and click through and find all of Iona's work thank you so much for your time today what you've talked about has been really illuminating and thought-provoking and I think we've all we've all probably learned something and got something to take away from that so thank you so much for your time of course thanks for having me it's wonderful thanks for joining us.
1: We'd love it if you'd leave a review or tell all your friends about us so that they too can be uncluttered. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us at beuncluttered.com.au or on social media or on our own websites at clearspace.net.au and basklifecoaching.com.